Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Truly we are privileged, dear church, to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, enter beyond the veil in this chapter. We have so many instances in the scriptures where we see someone praying unto the Lord. We see the Lord speaking from heaven. We see some instances in which Jesus would go and pray and he would pray all night. There were some passages in which would give us some indication as to what Jesus was praying. He prayed out loud before the tomb of Lazarus. There's the time in John chapter 12 when he says, Father, glorify your name. And we hear this voice from, from heaven or they heard this voice from heaven that is recorded for us where the Lord speaks back. And he says, I have both glorified it and will again. Here in John 17 is one of the longest prayers that we the longest interactions that we see of what of how the, the members of the Trinity interact with each other in that inner Trinitarian relationship. What does God say in and of himself to himself among the members of the, the triune God? And here we see such an intimate prayer, a prayer that is so loving that expresses the great love that exists between the Father and the Son. The love that the Son has for the Father. The love that the Father has for the Son. And we're privileged to see that. We're privileged to, to again, go beyond the veil and to see the Godhead interacting with each other. This is sacred ground that we are entering into this morning. This, is, this chapter has properly been called... The Lord's Prayer or the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. <clears throat> we often think of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. We often think of it as the Lord's Prayer, but it's really not the Lord's Prayer. This is a model prayer for the disciples. This, here in John 17, is the Lord's Prayer. Rightly titled again, the High Priestly Prayer of our Lord Jesus. This chapter has been so beloved by so many in the church throughout centuries because of what it is that Jesus prays for. What love that we see not only between the members of the triune God, but the love that they have for the people of God. Martin Luther says this, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart both in reverence to us and to his father. And he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. Philip Melanchthon, who is contemporary of Luther and a friend of Luther. He says, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth. More exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God Himself. This chapter was so beloved also by the Scottish reformer John Knox that in the days leading up to his death as he is enduring his illness that he would have this read every day to him until he passed away. That's how cherished that this, this passage is. How wonderful that it is. 
And what it teaches us, not only of the love that the, the triune God has for each other, but, but for us. And the things that Jesus prays for within this prayer. Praying for our joy and for our peace, for our protection. All of these things that we'll be going over in the coming weeks. It teaches us also that in the most distressing time of our Lord, in which he is going to give his life as a ransom for many, the very thing that he does is to enter into prayer. What a great lesson that that is for us. And the, and the content of the prayer and the purpose of the prayer and the, the requests that are made in this prayer also teach us how we ought to pray what we ought to be praying for. Now granted, this is, this is a prayer that can't be mimicked. This is a prayer that cannot be offered by us as it was to Christ because there is a special relationship between the Father and the Son. That's why Jesus gave us the prayer to model after in Matthew chapter 6. But there are things contained here that we can surely apply to our own prayer life. How amazing that this is and how much we've been looking forward to this since we started the Gospel of John. And I pray that it would be a blessing to all of us and would only enhance our adoration of our Lord as we see his heart poured out on behalf of his people. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will read the first five verses of John chapter 17. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear these words of the living God. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, and to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we recognize this holy ground that we have we have entered into, this holy place, being able to, to see, to hear the, the prayer of the Son of God to you. Well, Father, let us indeed grow to cherish this passage because of what Christ is praying for, that he's, he's interceding. Help us, Lord, to, to be so grateful for his continued work as we see it presented to us here. May the things that we read and, and the things that we learn by the Spirit of God be applied to our hearts, that we may grow even more in thankfulness unto you, grow even more in the grace of God which is extended to us, that you be honored in our lives, and that Christ would be magnified in our hearts, that our hearts would be overflowing with such great love and desire for him. Be with us and guide our thoughts and bless the preaching of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. 
again, mm, what a wonderful, wonderful chapter. This is really, as one writer said, this is, this is the crescendo of chapters 13 through 16. All that Jesus has been saying to the disciples and his encouragement to them. He ends his discourse to the disciples in chapter 16, verse 33, and he ends on that note of victory. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so here we are. We have just read these great comforting and encouraging words that Jesus has given to the disciples. And as he is saying these things, they have left the upper room. They are, they are heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. We had talked about back in chapter 15, as Jesus had talked about the true vine, that most likely they were passing by uh, the entrance into the temple at that time that had that, that great statue of the, the vine that was on there. That represented Israel in the Old Testament. That Christ himself is the true vine. And now they are continued. They're continuing their journey. Heading into the Kidron Valley. Which is in itself. Such a, an amazing. An amazing thing to consider. Amazing reality. Is the fact that when they get to the brook Kidron. Which would. It would flow out of the, the back area of the temple where they would sacrifice and all the blood of the sacrificial animals would be running through the, the Kidron brook. And here the son of God is going to step over the very symbol that pointed to him. This is the area that they're approaching. Perhaps as he is offering this great prayer. And as I said before, this is not a prayer that can be mimicked by us. Jesus taught us to pray our father. He doesn't begin his prayer in this way. He says, father, there is a special relationship that the son has with the father. It is an amazing thing to consider that within the triune nature of God, that God has decided to to present himself and to show himself using these these this kind of language. That familial language of father and son Jesus, as he begins this prayer, after encouraging his disciples, he says he lifts his eyes to heaven. Jesus lifts his eyes in confidence. This is a confident prayer. The things that Jesus requests in this prayer is not hoping that the Father will do these things, but this is a prayer of confidence of what the Father will do. He raises his eyes to heaven as he is the only one worthy to come before the Father in such a way and to make requests and to ask for the very thing that he deserves, which is his own glory. The glory which he shared with the Father before the world was. He doesn't hide his eyes. He doesn't hide his face as the publican did. Beating his chest. No. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. He is the worthy son. Again, this is his prayer. He doesn't pray as he taught the disciples. He doesn't pray, forgive us our trespasses, because he in himself is perfection. There is no darkness in him. There is no sin in him. He is the spotless, unblemished lamb of God. He is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He is the one and only. He is the unique son. He is the one who is in the bosom of the father. 
declaring Him. He is the exact representation of His nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And this prayer is one that is mediating for on behalf of His people. It's really, a lot of theologians would agree, it has three particular sections here. In these first five verses, He prays for Himself. In verses 6 through 19, He prays on behalf of the apostles. And then thereafter, He prays on behalf of those who would believe through Him, through them. He refers to himself in the third person here, the Son. He is speaking, he is praying as the Son of God, which is really bringing us back to some of these, these core truths that we've been learning throughout the Gospel of John. This is really that summary of all the things that Jesus prays for, the things that he's been talking about thus far, considering also who he is. That, that designation, the Son... Meaning the Son of God is showing, once again, His equality. His equality with the Father. His equality with the Holy Spirit. The one who shares in the very essence of God. He has the fullness of deity in Him. So here's what He says. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. The hour, the time, the precise moment in which God had, had directed from all eternity, that He had decreed from all eternity, is now here. Everything beforehand that was, that was brought about in order to, to point to the coming Messiah, to point to the time in which God would take away all sin, that time is now. That time has come. We were talking this past Wednesday night about the Day of Atonement and how it was the great high day for the Jews this was the day in which the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would make intercession on behalf of the people of Israel. There was a number of things that we looked at that were pointing to this great work that was getting ready to come at the, in the fullness of time at the proper hour that Jesus would perform these things. It's, it's, a, it's really interesting to consider the things that were necessary for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. He had to bathe himself. He had to put on special garments. Just for this occasion. He had to make atonement for himself. Before he could ever enter into the place. He had to, he had to consecrate the, the, the place itself. The, the holiest of places. He had to put blood on the altar. It had to be consecrated because of the impurities of the people that the temple and the tabernacle just dwelling among the people and the sin that pervaded the, the community that it needed to be sanctified before the, the high priest could even make atonement on behalf of the people. We talked about how there were two goats that would be brought to him that he would cast lots. One goat would be for the, the, the sacrifice to make atonement in the most holy place. The other would be for the scapegoat. All of these things pointing to Jesus because we saw how the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel over this goat and then take it out of the camp. There would be an appointed person to take it out of the camp that the other one would be sacrificed to make atonement on behalf of all the people of Israel for all their sins. 
It was something different than, than what would happen normally when you would offer a burnt offering or you would offer a guilt offering or a sin offering. You had committed a great trespass against the Lord. And so in order to, to atone for what you had done, you would do this. But this day was for all sin. The sins that, we had con- that they had continually done. And the high priest would have to prepare himself in such a way to be able to go into the Holy of Holies and to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But the Son of God here, as He is inter- interceding on our behalf, He is not one that has to atone for His own sins. He's not one that has to put on special garments in order to symbolize purity because He is the epitome of purity. He can come before His Father at any moment because He is the perfect Son of God and He is coming before Him in this way on this night on behalf of His people to, to demonstrate what it is that He is their mediator. He is going to pray, not only for Himself, but for all the people of God. The hour had come for all of this to take place. Human history would converge on this moment, this hour. All human history rests on this event. So the hour had come. And he says, glorify your son. Let the son may glorify you. He makes a request for something that he rightfully deserves. We couldn't pray this. We couldn't come before the father and say, glorify me. Who are we? Only the son is worthy to ask of the father, glorify me. What does it mean, though? That's one of the questions. What does it mean when when Christ is praying to the father, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you? It comes from this Greek word doxa, where we get doxology. And the question comes back to, well, wasn't he glorified already throughout his ministry? And yes, he was. We read back in John chapter 2. When he had made the water into wine. The apostle John says in verse 11. He says this beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So what does it mean? If Jesus is praying that God would glorify the son. And then he goes on to say. Glorify me with the glory which I shared with you before the world was. What is he meaning? Wasn't he glorified already? The answer is yes, he was. Because our Lord is glorified when the radiance of his attributes are displayed at any time. Throughout his entire ministry. Now, glorify means, it can mean to praise, honor. uh, Just as Jesus had said Uh, Just as those who honor the Father should honor the Son, it can mean that. In in Greek thought, it it came from this word, uh, this word doxa. It's based upon this ancient verb, dakeel. And in the early days, it meant to seem, to appear, or to have an opinion. And it's really interesting how this word evolves. But this meaning is is really the expressions that Paul uses when in Galatians chapter 2. Of that original meaning of it. Paul uses this 
three times in Galatians chapter 2. Again, it means to seem or to appear or to have an opinion. The apostle says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I, had, that I might be running in vain. In verse 6, but from those who were of the high reputation, what they, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, they were those who were of reputation, contributed nothing to me. The ones who appeared to have reputation uh, is the same word here, dakeo. He uses it three times in, in the epistle to the Galatians with that kind of a meaning. Those who seem to have reputation is the idea that is conveyed there. That's the word that's being used. Now, the corresponding noun to this meant opinion or one who thinks. And this meaning is really preserved in our words orthodox, which is uh, to have a right opinion or heterodox, which is a different opinion or paradox, which is a contrary opinion. That meaning still is, is contained in our English language of the original uh, verb there. But over time, this noun, this noun began to be developed into something different, to mean a good opinion, or that which, merit, which merits good reputation. Good opinion. It began to be used in this way to praise or honor good standing, reputation, renown. And it is used numerous times of kings, of their renown and their reputation, uh, to praise and to honor, especially in reference to the Lord. In Psalm 24, we read of those wonderful words, Who is this king of glory? The word doxa. In the Septuagint, it uses the word doxa. This, this kind of expression of glory, this praise, this honor, this reputation, this renown that is contained in the word glory, Jesus absolutely retained during his ministry as he manifested the character of God throughout everything that he did and everything that he said, every work that he performed. But it also has another meaning. In more Hebrew thought, which would be combined into the Greek understandings of things over time, the Jewish thought was that any outward manifestation of God's presence was believed to involve a display of light or radiance or glory so brilliant that no man could approach it. This is where, like Paul uses the expression that, that uh, he is our only sovereign, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. As we read of in like Isaiah 6, as we see Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up in, in the glory of the Lord shining round about. Or when Moses asked to see the Lord's glory and he says, show me your glory. And the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passes by and Moses is privileged to see the glory that surrounds the very being of God. That brilliance of light is re recognized as his glory. His visible glory. The manifestation of his holiness. The beauty of God. That very thing is what was veiled in human flesh. When Christ... Uh, became when he became man there are many passages that express that kind of an idea that shekinah glory that we read of in the old testament and in, in the psalms for example before the incarnation our lord jesus the son of god the second person of the trinity retained both in eternity past the brilliance of who he was his very character his nature 
everything on display and the brilliance of light that emanated from him, which was his holiness put on display that we recognize as the very beauty and the glory of God. In the incarnation, Christ veiled his glory. When Christ came as a man, the scripture tells us in Isaiah 53 that there was nothing really, a, any, there was nothing, anything about him that we would desire him. There was nothing special to see. He was a man. He came as a servant. He came in obedience to another. And so in this way, he laid aside his divine rights, his divine privileges. He veiled himself in human flesh. And he came as a man so that through everything that he did and everything that he said, the moral attributes of God and the moral glory of God that we would look at is, is absolutely present in all that he did. But he is praying now that the Father would glorify him in that other meaning. As D.A. Carson says, it means to clothe in splendor. He says, the petition asked the Father to reverse the, self, the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began, end quote. That's what Jesus is praying for. To be clothed with splendor and majesty as he was before. Remember what Paul says. That when, when Christ made himself, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Now, we've talked about that before. He didn't empty himself of deity. He cannot stop being God. He adds humanity to his being. But we remember, too, that Christ did not come as a great king walking upon the earth. He came as a servant. He humbled himself, came as a servant. He lays aside his divine privileges, which is to be king over all. Because he is. And so the petition here is the reversal of the self-emptying of the incarnation. Glorify your son, he says, that the son may glorify you. And it's very important to understand this as well as Jesus is praying these very things. Jesus's request for the father to glorify him is not a dependence upon the father for his deity. Understand that. This isn't a request for the father to communicate to him or to mediate to him deity. He's not relying upon the father to do that. It's not as if the father himself or or the father alone is God in himself. And then he communicates to the other members of the triune God deity. That's not what it is. So don't misunderstand Jesus praying to the father for this purpose. Glorify me with the glory which I shared with you. This isn't a call to say, give me back my deity. Because he is God. He is equal to the Father. Paul makes it very clear in Philippians 2. He is equal. The very title, the Son of God, is a demonstration of his equality with God. It's not an inferior title. So this is not a prayer for the Father to communicate to him deity. As if the Father alone is God in himself. The only independent one. This is a prayer of reliance and trust. A confident prayer 
that what the Father had promised him as a result of his submission to him, he would bring to pass. It goes back to this agreement from eternity past among the members of the triune God that the Son willingly says, I will carry out redemption, submitting to the will of the Father. And the Father, His, His role in sending the Son as well is, you empty yourself, I will glorify you. I will restore you to your divine throne, if you will. To your majesty and the glory which you had before. So again, this is a prayer of trust and reliance, demonstrating the faithfulness of the Father and giving to the Son the very thing that He had promised Him as a result of the Son submitting to the Father. At any time, we understand this, at any time Jesus could have manifested His full deity. At any point, if He wanted to. So again, it's not as if He's dependent upon the Father for deity. He is God. He's God all the time. And he could manifest his deity at any time that he wanted. But the whole point of the incarnation was to carry out not his will, but the will of the Father. And in doing so, the agreement, as we're reading here, that the Son would submit to the will of the Father. And the Father would glorify the Son upon him completing his work. This is trust. This is a divine love that is, that is being spoken of here this is demonstrating that perfect unity and bringing about the redemption of God's people. This is, this is a complete reliance upon the Father and the Holy Spirit to sustain Him as it was agreed upon in eternity past. So let us not misunderstand what Jesus is praying for here. He didn't empty Himself of deity and now He's praying for His deity back. He's petitioning the Father to do exactly what the Father said He would do. And as a result of the Father carrying out exactly what He said He would do, the Son is going to carry out exactly what He said He would do. This is showing that unity and that faithfulness amongst the two. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is not exempt from any of this. Is It's going to be the Spirit of God who upholds Christ in the time in which He is on the cross in the time in which the Father is pouring out His wrath upon the Son. To sustain Him. To uphold Him. As it is said in the prophecy, He will uphold Him by His Spirit. So that let us not misunderstand here. So the hour has come for this to be carried out. The hour not meaning just His death, but His, his resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation, His coronation. Everything is, is in view here. His departure from, from earth back to the Father by way of the cross. The hour had come, the perfect precision of God to bring about His work of redemption at His appointed time is now. And as a result of this great work, that Christ himself is fulfilling everything that pointed to him prior. Not only in the day of atonement, but in the work of the high priest. In the, in the sacrifices that were all pointing to him. He is bringing about the new covenant that was promised beforehand. A better covenant, covenant with better promises and a better mediator. 
But it's going to have to be through this, the pain and suffering of the anointed one, who will bear the sins of his people as the suffering substitute, as it was prophesied beforehand. Again, everything is being carried out at the proper time, showing the faithfulness of God of what he said before he is bringing to pass now. All the prophecies that were ever said, that were ever brought about in the Old Testament that pointed to this day, everything is converging here. You read Isaiah 53 and you read of the suffering servant. By his stripes we are healed. All that wonderful language that we read of here. That's 700 years prior to this. This is the time in which everything that was said there is coming to pass here. In Psalm 22, one of the most vivid descriptions of the crucifixion of our Lord in all of Scripture through David is all coming to pass here. The one whom they pierced through, the one whose hands and feet would be pierced. It's all converging here. The hour had come at God's precise moment and the son is being faithful and carrying out his work. The father is being faithful and glorifying the son and sustaining him by the spirit of God. Throughout all of it. The time had come for sin to be dealt with. Truly dealt with. Not as it was beforehand. Again on the day of atonement as the priest would go in and he would be sprinkling the blood on, on the altar. On the mercy seat. Perhaps being able to see the blood from the previous year. Or the blood from 20 years ago. The blood from 30 years ago. Every year it was a reminder that sin had not been dealt with. This is the hour that sin would be dealt with by the Son of God. And the Son is going to glorify the Father. He prays, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, that the Son may be able to bring glory and honor to the Father. I look at his request. He's worthy to come before the Father. He's the only one worthy. You see His glory, the glory of the Son of God there. And then you see the requests that are made by the Son of God. The requests that are made in verse 2 really correspond back to verse 1. When He says, The Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. is corresponding to, You gave Him authority over all flesh. And then when the Son is saying that the Son may glorify You, the Son glorifies the Father by giving to those whom the Father had given Him eternal life. They're corresponding to each other. The first thing that He says, Glorify your Son even as you gave Him authority over all flesh. The authority over all was granted to the Son. All flesh is speaking of all humanity. All mankind. All authority has been given to the Son. He says that in the past tense, by the way. You gave Him authority over all flesh. This isn't something that Christ receives necessarily because of His finished work. It was given to Him in eternity past. It was conferred to Him. You have authority over all flesh. Again, within that agreement among the triune God. Because again, as we're reading this, we can have some misunderstandings of things. Because in, in the language that is being used, we forget sometimes that Christ is truly, truly human. And he is praying as a man as well. The language that is used here can often be like, well, does that mean that everything is coming from the Father? The Father gives him authority. The Father gives him deity. The Father gives him everything. So, so is he lesser than the Father? And some of that language can almost be like, 
so what's he meaning there? But again, if we go back to our understanding of things that Jesus has been saying throughout the whole Gospel of John, he is the great I am. There's no question there. And we have to understand this as best as we can to recognize that he is not inferior to the Father. He is not dependent upon the Father for his being, for his character, for his nature, for his essence, as he has it in the fullest measure. So let us not forget that. The Father had given him authority over all flesh. That would almost seem like, so it, was, it belonged to the Father. And then the Father... Gave it to the son because the son couldn't have had it in and of himself. I mean, what's, what's the language there? But again, that's not what is being meant here. The son is just as much God as the father. They are one in essence. The fullness of deity dwells in him. The fullness of deity the father has. The fullness of deity the spirit has. They are co-equal, co-existent, all of that language that we learn in theology. But then in eternity past, among the agreement that was made among the Godhead, all authority over all human flesh given to him. All mankind. All authority was given and granted to the Son as the son says in John chapter 5, that he's the one to whom judgment has been given. So when the time comes that the dead are raised and who they stand before, they stand before God, but they're standing before the son. He is their judge. When we read of in Second Thessalonians, who is the one who deals out divine retribution? In Second Thessalonians 1, beginning of verse 6, we read, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you, for our, our testimony to you was believed. So the Apostle Paul is saying that when the Lord Jesus comes back in all his glory with his mighty angels, he's the one who possesses them. He's the one as far as who, who owns them, if you will. He is their Lord. When he comes and he deals out retribution, it's Christ who does it. Judgment has been given to the Son. All power over mankind is given to the Son. Jesus himself in eternity past, he has been granted among the Godhead, the one to be the head over all. The head over all mankind. He is the head of every man as the scripture says. He is the head of the church. He's the head of the redeemed. He's the head of the principalities and powers. He's the first in rank. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's, he has the preeminence in everything. It's to him one day that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has all authority and all power over all the human realm.
A.W. Pink says this, The place which God has destined him to occupy was that of rightful authority over the whole human race with com complete control over all events in connection with them. That's the place that is granted to him. <clears throat> J.C. Ryle, he says, the, king, the keys of heaven are in the hands of Christ. The salvation of every human soul is at his disposal. Because he goes on to say, not only has he been granted authority over all flesh, but he goes on to say that to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. So here we have Christ's universal authority over all. And then the charge that is given to him that is more of that narrow charge to grant eternal life to those that the Father had given him. He has power and authority to do that. And this is the manner in which the Son glorifies the Father. That for those that the Father gave to him, the Son grants eternal life. This is how the Son of God, the second person, will glorify the first. Now think of the security that is in this statement here. That it, it's, it's, it's Jesus praying to the Father. It's Jesus asking the Father to glorify Him so that this may occur, that the Son would glorify you and grant eternal life to all that you have given Him. This is... This is a wonderful statement of security for the believer. Christ delights in doing the will of the Father. He's made that clear all through the Gospel of John. Christ delights in, 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 in saving those that the Father has given to him. He says, all that the Father gives me. That's, that's the language that he uses in John 6. This is, this is a great comfort for the people of God. That he will do this. He has done this and he delighted to do this. He willingly done this. That the elect are secured. Those whom you have given him. That's the language that he used. That's the language he's going to continue to use throughout, the gospel, or throughout this chapter. That's language that we really need to get a little used to. Because Jesus is going to use it again. It shouldn't be language that makes us uncomfortable. It should be language that gives us such great hope and peace. To know that all that the Father give to the Son has, has, has given to the Son are secured. And not one of them is lost. That's the great promise. You gave him authority over all flesh. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Again, as J.C. Ryle says, the keys of heaven are in the hands of Christ. The keys of heaven have been granted to him. And the salvation of every human soul is at his disposal. And he saves all the Father gave him. That's the language that he used back in John 10. That he lays down his life for his sheep. This is such amazing language. Such encouraging language. To recognize that the Son delights in the Father. The Father delights in the Son. The Son will carry out all that the Father gave Him to do because His desire is to glorify the Father. The Father is pleased in the Son to give Him a bride 
and the Son will, will purchase their redemption in order that the Father be glorified. It is such... It, it, it's beautiful. Really, what other word can you use to think of what's being said here and the delight in the one to save those that the other had given? But this is it. This is what we're reading. The hour came. Glorify your son. Because the desire of the son is to glorify him. And he does it through saving the people of God. Now, if we, if we have difficulties with that, we need to go back and think of some of the Old Testament themes that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. Again, on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was not for the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Canaanites. The Day of Atonement was not for the Assyrians or the Romans or the Babylonians or the Greeks. The Day of Atonement was just for Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God. It was only for them. That carries right over into the New Testament understanding that Christ is dying a real death for sin. And he does so as our mediator, the one who enters through the veil not made with hands to offer himself to the Father. The glorious one to whom all these pointed to. He saves his people. That's the way it was in the old covenant. That's the way it is into the new. And he does so to all that the father gave to him. He dies a death on their behalf specifically. Not generally. If again as we've been talking about. If Jesus died a death for every single person in existence. Who did he die for, really? Maybe you, if you activate that salvation, maybe. And so the only thing we can ever go back to is that it is a potential death. But if we understand the things that Jesus has said and the mission of Jesus and the language that he has used all through the Gospels, we understand he dies a real death for sin as a real substitute for all that the Father has given to him. It's as if the Father lays on, lays his hands on the head of the Son and transfers to him, imputes to him all that the Father had given to him, all their sins, all their wickedness, all their trespasses. He lays it on the Son outside the camp as our substitute and he pours out his wrath upon the Son. A real death for sin. And that's what Jesus brings about. That the Father will be glorified in the Son in His saving work. Now, we can't really go too much further there. We'll pick it back up next Lord's Day. But some things to look at here. Some things that we can, that we can I pray, apply to our own lives. Is one... In the time of this great agony that Jesus is getting ready to endure. He doesn't give himself over to an acceptance of fatalism. That what will be, what will be. Or what will be, will be. The very thing that he does. Is he comes before the Father in prayer. 
That's what he does. He prays. This is the Son of God. And he prays to the Father in light of the hour coming. And this is the very thing that we do follow in the footsteps of our Lord with. That in the hour of trial and the hour of tribulation, we don't just give ourselves over and say, well, what's going to be will be. Let's just keep moving forward. No, we bury our face before a holy God. And we petition Him, we request of Him help, strength, wisdom. All for this purpose, by the way. Jesus, His whole goal in all of this, His whole purpose is for the Father to be glorified. So that brings that into our prayer life as well. And in our our walk with Christ. That everything that we do should be for the very glory of God. That the Father would be glorified in us. Just as that was the goal of the Son. That was the purpose of the Son. To glorify the Father. Not to be selfish. Not to be self-centered in everything that we ask of the Lord. But to say, Lord, how may I glorify you in this? In the time of my suffering, how may I glorify you? Because that's the great purpose of the people of God. Is that we have the privilege of glorifying the Lord. Ascribing worth to Him in all that we do. One writer says this. When we take up Jesus' mindset regarding salvation, our attitude toward everything changes. We no longer come to church primarily to get something for ourselves. Insisting on our own preferences, but to render honor to God and grow in his grace. We no longer approach trials and tribulations as lamentable tragedies, but as opportunities to show forth the glory of God's grace in our lives. As James wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As Jesus' hour of crisis approaches... He reveals the chief passion of his life. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, Here he is, just before the cross. The crucial moment is at hand. He knows something about the agony and the sweat of Gethsemane. And his one desire is this, Father, enable me to go on. Give me strength to bear. Give me all I need to do this in order that your great glory in this matter of salvation can be revealed and made manifest. I have come to do that. Enable me to do it, that your name may be glorified. End quote. That was by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. But that's what it brings about. In everything that we do, should be for that purpose Father, glorify your name. Glorify yourself in me. That's why throughout the history of the church, some of the worst things to ever come about on the people of God in great persecutions, yes, or even in the individual lives of others. Like, like as we talked about before, Annie Johnston Flynn, who had rheumatoid arthritis and all curled up, uh, crippled, blind. And what does she pin when she pins that great hymn? She says, out of the storehouses, he gives and gives and gives again, speaking of his grace. 
regardless of what happens in your individual life, it should be, Father, how may I glorify you? And you know what that helps you to do? It helps you to focus back into the, not just being contained in yourself, but that helps you to focus back into the reality of God in your life and the grace of God in calling you so that though the situation is hard and it's painful and it's, 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 you know, it's grievous, many situations are. But to bring ourselves back to that, how may I glorify you in this, can help start to bring healing instead of complaining about where we're at or what's happening in our life. Casting, casting you know, doubts upon uh, God. This is what happened. We, we oftentimes sound like Job. I didn't deserve that. And then we have those wonderful friends that come around. Well, you're just a big sinner. But it should be. Lord, I don't know why this is happening. But help me to glorify you in it. Let me bring honor to you by the way that I conduct myself in this and that others see me in this. Let me do it in your own strength because I can't do it in myself. I have to rely upon you. And so the purpose of, of all prayer, the purpose of all suffering, the purpose of all trials, the purpose of everything in life, whatever you do in word and deed, do to the glory of God. That should be our ultimate goal and our ultimate purpose. And prayer is the very vehicle that helps us to be reminded of those things and to seek out that very thing in our lives. And the other, of course, thing that we read here or understand in the time of prayer is that of intercession. Much of this prayer is going to be praying on behalf of someone else. And that is also what we should be praying for is not just ourselves not just our own needs or wants or our own situations, but looking out for the interest of others too. Intercessory prayer is part of the Christian life. And that's exactly what our Lord is going to show us throughout the coming weeks as we work our way through this passage. Uh, I pray that it would be a great blessing to all of us as we move through this, this precious, precious part of God's word here in John 17. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you once again to give you thanks, to honor you, uh, not only with our lips, but with our hearts. What an amazing, uh, what an amazing situation, circumstance. What, this, is, this is beyond our scope of understanding of this relationship that exists between you and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But Father, how, how grateful that we are that you've allowed us to gaze through the veil and to still speak in such a way that we may comprehend something about who you are, even though the, the things that are contained here are so vast and so wonderful, so beyond our scope of true understanding. Thank you for allowing it to be recorded that we can feast upon it. And continue to feast upon it for a lifetime of the wonderful work of our Lord as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our mediator. And to see the love that exists among the Godhead and to know what perfect unity exists there. 
Help us, Lord, in the coming weeks uh, that, we, that we give ourselves over even more so to growing in the grace of our Lord and to honor you in, in our walk with you daily. Give us wisdom, Father, in our situations and circumstances and help us to be mindful to pray for your, your honor and your glory to be made manifest in them. And to help us, Lord, to be praying on behalf of others. So often we pray only for ourselves. But what a privilege it is to bring others before the throne of grace. Help us to be mindful of that. And to please you and to honor you by looking up for the others whom Christ has died for. Father, thank you again. May you be glorified. May you be praised in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.